A quick fact before we get into today's episode. There are less than 10,000 bilbies left in Australia. 10,000? I had no idea it was so few. Which is why I'll be buying a bright pink Daryl Lee milk chocolate bilby this Easter. The good folks at Daryl Lee will again donate 20 cents from every deliciously smooth and creamy milk chocolate bilby sold to the Save the Bilby Fund. So do your bit and buy a Daryl Lee bilby for mum. Buy one for the kids. Buy one for your Uncle Steve. And help this cute and very important Australian animal survive for decades more. You can't miss them. Just look for the bright pink Daryl Lee Bilby and Woolworth stores right across Australia, which is where I hope we see many more Bilbies in years to come. Daryl Lee makes it better. This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, Song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Andrew Penfold is the CEO of AIEF, the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation, an organisation he founded in 2008 in a bid to help close the gap. AIEF carries out truly nation-changing work, supporting over 1,000 Indigenous people from over 400 communities in every state and territory of Australia. The results are among the very best in the world, with over 90% of AIEF students completing Year 12 and successfully transitioning into further studies or employment. Andrew, welcome to Five of My Life. Thank you, Nigel. Great to be here. Before we get into your five choices, I would like to ask you a question about some of our other guests. Mm -hmm. Now, we're not allowed to reveal favourites, obviously, but I'd like to ask you... uh, if any particular guest or story has stood out for you? I think probably two of them have mostly, um, and they're both people I kind of know well or know, um, you know, a little bit. Uh, Chris Mitchell and Tanya Plibersek. Right. Um, I think in Chris's case, he, you know, was the most powerful man in the Australian media, um, and yet there's very little written about him, very very little he's written or spoken about himself, and... Um, um, and there's a lot of perceptions about a person like him with the whole Murdoch press thing and all sure. of this sort of thing. But actually when you hear him and hear him speak and, and and have a chat with him, you find out that he's a really quite a gentle person. He's very thoughtful. He's not, you know, he's not sort of some right-wing zealot and, and all of this sort of thing. He's a very balanced, measured person. And to hear his story about his mum and his family mm. and um, and his experiences growing up and the experiences through the media and so on, it's just a fascinating fascinating individual and I love kind of observing power um, and when you see it in someone like that over such a long time and then you see the human side of, of a person like that, it's really fascinating and I've been fortunate to um, have built a friendship with him as well, which is wonderful, but just hearing him speak in that way um, was really insightful and, and interesting for me. Um, and and Tanya, I just think, you know, she... Um, just her story, her family, her background, um, her experiences growing up in 
Sydney and um, you know, the, the national parks and the rock bands that she used to love and all of this sort of thing. And she just she's just a fascinating character. And I think she's someone who really appeals to people on both sides of politics. It's really hard not to like Tanya Plibersek, no matter how political you are, no matter what your political stripes. And to hear her speak in such a personal um, um, and humble kind of way about her background and her life story, I found her really fascinating as well. I'm so glad that you chose those two. You know, you know, Tanya brought in, I didn't ask her to, she brought in her five. Yeah, yeah I know. It's just it's so sweet. And, and, and you're, it's a very uh, perceptive observation. She, you just impossible not to warm to her. Yeah. yeah he's the exactly. guy that's like he was a human. And when there's a really difficult debate, she doesn't kind of get rancorous and angry and bitter and hostile. She kind of, you know, she's just a very good communicator and she just builds, I don't know, she builds followers basically from the way she acts, talks, engages, just very respectful and empathetic and personal and human, just an awesome person. Kicking off with your film, Mm -hmm. you have chosen the Keanu Reeves, Patrick Swayze Action thriller. Point break. Hmm. 1991. Mate, I, I'm imagining and I'm hoping there's something other than you like surfing behind this choice. Tell me about it. Well, I think a lot of my choices don't come down to the content of the thing itself. It's really about the memories <laughs> of it. You understand the format? Uh, well, I, I guess so. But um, no, I mean, when I seriously think about what movie means the most to me, um, what film means the most to me, it just, this takes me back to a whole different life and a whole circle of friends and you know, 1991, I was living in London, formed an amazing relationship with this guy that I met in a pub on a Thursday night or a Tuesday night and invited him to come with us on a weekend to St. Patrick's Day in Dublin the following weekend. And he wasn't able to come um, because he had a wedding to go through on the Saturday, but he then got on a plane, left the wedding and came to St. Patrick's Day um, and spent the rest of the weekend with us in Dublin. A couple of years later, he became my best man. And um, when, when I got married and just this instant friendship with someone and basically there was him and another guy that he met and my wife, um, Michelle, girlfriend at the time, um, and the four of us were just this little gang in London. And, in you know, London was such an amazing part of my life, going over working these massive big law well, where firms. Where were you living, and, by the way? Uh, I was living in Fulham, right, right. south-west London, yep, um, just around the corner from Earl's Court where all the Aussies kind of <laughs> congregate. I think Fulham was the kind of the, you know, Earl's Court was the Darlinghurst and Fulham was the Paddington kind right. of thing. It was a little bit yuppie, but um, but a great place to live with with everything around it. Um, and it was just an amazing time in my life. And as you know, um, certainly back then, I don't know what it's like these days, but pubs close early. You used to have the Sunday lockout where you had to, you know, leave the pub and the pub would close for the afternoon and so on. And so every time we'd go out, we'd always come back to our place, this gang of four, and we'd play music and we'd have a few drinks and we'd just muck around, the four, <laughs> four of us, um, largely the four of us, and we must have watched that movie 50, 60 times and it was just the most ridiculous movie. I mean, I almost chose Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure <laughs> for the same reason, yeah. right? They were our two sort of staples. And um, So for me it's not, you know, there's some funny lines. I do love surfing. Yeah. Um, I thought, you know, Keanu was a fantastic actor and not necessarily that was his best movie but – um, you know, an interesting individual and um, and I just it just grew on me. And even as a result of that, we, um, you know, there's this famous scene in it where Keanu jumps out of a plane without a parachute <laughs> on. Ah. After watching that, we all had this fun experience where the four of us plus a couple of others we managed to drag along went and did this weekend up in Kent where you learn to jump out of a plane yeah. and do a parachuting. 
Um, but we got there on the Friday night, as often happens, you know, Friday night, everyone goes a little bit too hard. <laughs> and um, we turned up on the Sunday, we're staying in the local pub. And of course, because we're staying there, they kept the bar open after closing hours. And we got to the, the training the next day after, so, sorry, this was the Sunday. We'd done our training on the Saturday, turned up on the Sunday morning to do our jump. And the instructor said to us, um, well, just before we do anything, you know, just need, has anyone been drinking? <laughs> And we were like, oh, well, we had a couple last night. And it was like, none of you are allowed to jump. So we'd spent all this time. And then we had to wait months to get everyone available, the right weather, no wind and yeah. all of this sort of stuff to do it. But we eventually did it. And, you know, they take a little photo off a camera that they mount on the wing as you jump out. And this is not tandem with an instructor. Yeah. You are sitting in the door of a plane yeah. I, and I've you have it, to yeah. push yourself out. <laughs> and it's just incredibly scary. Um, and so that for me was a kind of an interesting moment in life of doing that as well and an experience and adventure. I would never do it again because I don't want to sort of risk my life. But, um, you know, that came from the film or yeah. having a few beers one so, night so what, and like, Let's go and jump out of a plane. Like, what a stupid thing to do. But the photo that was taken off the wing, Stu looked at it and he actually got it printed on a T-shirt and <laughs> gave it to me. And he said, that is the ultimate definition of fear, looking yeah. at your face. <laughs> and, uh, and he was right, but amazing experience. But just the whole thing of London, I mean, a great city, a great time of life, great age. And what were you doing there? Uh, so basically when I finished uni, um, my girlfriend, now wife, Michelle and I went travelling all around the world and we spent a couple of years backpacking literally, you know, every corner of the earth and as um, most young Aussies did in those days and probably still do today and um, eventually went to London to get a job and to live in London. It was part of the Aussie kind of coming of age. What you was know? the job? What was your profession? Well, Fessa. it was interesting because I'd qualified, I'd, I'd studied law, I'd done the six-month college of law, qualified as a solicitor in Australia, and whilst I was doing that, I worked for two years in a really big city firm in Sydney, big, in, uh, you know, finance firm and so on. And uh, anyway, so I got to London thinking I'd waltz into a job in a fancy city um, law firm, and, of course, this was just at the end of 1990 and the recession where interest rates were at 20%. So every single firm in London was firing lawyers left, right and centre by the hundreds. And here's me sending out my resume trying to get a job. I mean, in those days, no mobile phone. I was working as a bartender, making like £3 an hour through an agency, and I had to pay all my money to typists to write <laughs> cover letters and resumes for them for me send them off in the mail to law firms all over the place. And I didn't have a home phone because I was staying on people's sofas <laughs> and stuff. So I had to actually give the phone number of a phone box, right? right? <laughs> and so on my days off, I would sit in this phone box in the ground floor of the Law Society in Chancery Lane and give them the phone number and sit by the phone all day waiting for the call. Yeah. Of course, no one ever called me, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, eventually one firm, Freshfields, called me and said, you know, there's no way we can hire you as a lawyer, but... Um, because uh, we're firing people left, right and centre, but we do have an opening for a paralegal. Um, it's better than being a bartender making three pounds an hour. Would you like to take it? So um, I was over the moon and um, and I basically said to them, look, I, that would be fantastic as long as that doesn't preclude you on a policy basis from transferring me to become a lawyer. And they said, yeah, we'll give you six months and then see how you go. And as it actually happened, they promoted me to become a lawyer in about four weeks. So that was awesome. So, you know, I worked in Freshfields doing... Um, you know, big city finance firm. We were the lawyers to the Bank of England and represented all these massive companies. And I pretty much spent the two years there doing financing for aircraft fleets, um, you know, major sort of facilities, billions of dollars, hundreds of banks and a bigger Irish airline um, aircraft leasing company. 
and just amazing, amazing experience. And, you know, then once I was not earning three pounds an hour and living on someone's sofa, uh, you know, we were sort of trotting off to Paris for the weekend and down to Amsterdam. And and I worked with a whole lot of guys in London office who were, um, you know, from all over the world, every nationality. So we had this real gang there. And um, But, you know, the weekends, work was always has been for me. Work is kind of work and friends are friends. And I never sort of liked to cross over the two. So I did have some great friendships with the work colleagues and weekends and so on. But really the core of that four of us as this kind of gang, um, which was the sort of the back to the point break kind of thing, <laughs> you know, where it all started. And it was just all the great times we had. And unfortunately, Stu, the guy who I was talking about, um, uh, who then became our best man two years after we married, he was actually um, killed in Melbourne. So we were down there for a Bledisloe Cup game. We'd flown down from Hong Kong when I was living at the time. And, um, uh, you know, we all went out afterwards for a few beers and I went home a little bit earlier and, Michelle, my wife, and and Stu and a couple of others left this bar and crossed a road, um, mm. you know, major road, and basically there was a taxi coming up on the inside that they didn't see, and Stu and my wife were holding hands as they crossed the road, and they both got hit by this taxi and thrown 50 metres up the road. Unfortunately, Stu, you know, landed directly on his head and was killed instantly, and Michelle kind of woke up in a daze next to him and, you know, he was gone. So, you know, there's the... Um, that sort of tragic element of it as well, mm. you know, and I kind of, I guess, um, you know, the movie reminds me of Stu um, and uh, and Stu um, <clears throat> just kind of reminds me about a lot of things in life that I value and are important and so on. Um, so, you know, and I think the, the, the funny thing is that until that time, all of my best friends had come from people that I'd grown up with through boarding school or, you know, other real sort of, long-term interactions and here's a guy I met in one night in a pub and he turned up in Dublin the following weekend to come and join us for a party and um and two years later was my best man actually he was Michelle's best man um so Michelle and I decided we'd both have a best man and we'd both have a bridesmaid so you know <laughs> Doyle was my best man Stu was Michelle's best man and then we both had bridesmaids as well um and you know and and Stu used to have this he was just this guy who was so happy and so full of life and so adventurous. He had so many friends and adventures and everything. And, um, and we became best friends really quickly, but not just me. It was Michelle and I as well. It was a real kind of mutual friendship for both of us. But he used to say, you know, who's this bloody Larry guy? You know, happy as Larry. He goes, forget Larry. I'm happy as Stu. <laughs> happy as right? Stu. So, so now kind of we've got this in our, in our sort of lexicon as well, where whenever we're happy and feeling great, we're happy as Stu. And it's just all that sort of memories of him and and time in London and, you know, and also remembering the, the tragedy and, um, and just that kind of idea of living life to the full and taking every opportunity and, and building friendships and connections with people because you just never know, you know. Yeah, hangs on next. a thread, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Moving to your book, Andrew, you have chosen, I think, the most uh, unusual and unique book on Five of My Life. It is just the most incredible uh, tome. It's called Atlas of the Heavens, 1948 by Antonin Bekvar. Have I pronounced that right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I won't describe it. I'd like you to describe it for us, please. Well, I mean, it's um, it could equally be my favourite thing as my favourite book. It's kind of, um, uh, it was described, I think, by Nicholas Rothwell, who introduced me to it. Um, or there was either Nicholas or someone else who he quoted, but basically it's as much a work of art as a work of science. It's basically 
here's this guy in the 1940s in Czechoslovakia um, living in virtual isolation on the top of a mountain in um, um, doing his astronomy and, and mapping the skies. So he basically developed an atlas of stars by hand, right? And it's just kind of, so the, the book itself, you know, you turn the pages, you see these majestic works of art and you just mind boggles. How could one person do this? It's so intricate and beautiful and detailed. And I know nothing about stars, but when I look at the pages of this book, it just makes me dream and it makes my, it, it makes me feel dreamy and lofty and taking away to an amazing place. And, um, so, you know, not only that, but he, you know, this guy, um, um, put his life on the line, basically. So, you know, at the end of the war, when the German demolition squads were retreating and they went around smashing up everything in their way, he put his life on the line guarding this kind of um, observatory on the top of this mountain where he lived in isolation and stayed a few more years afterwards um, to finish his work. And just, um, you know, someone, I guess, you know, so many things about this book, it's the beauty of it. It's the mind-boggling complexity of it. It's the, like you touch the pages, you look at the jagged edges on the cover and it's a big A3 size book, you know, not many books are that bound. It was very hard to find. Um, I actually read about it. So Nicholas Rothwell had, had written a book and, um, and he started talking about it in there. And I was so fascinated by the way Nicholas kind of wrote about it and described it that I had to get it. Um, and also because it was Czechoslovakia, my wife is Czechoslovakian. Um, her family were refugees from Czechoslovakia and they're part of the underground movement, you know, fighting the communists and they had to flee the border and, you know, chasing, getting chased by Germans with machine guns and hand grenades. So it's a real kind of thing. And I'd spent time in Czechoslovakia with my wife and her mother and grandmother, the three generations of the girls and me sort of tagging along and um, fell in love with the place and just the beauty and imagery of this guy back then with no technology and, you know, in the midst of war and chaos, sitting there calmly for years and years and years, creating an atlas of the heavens. It was just, I just had never heard of it. I didn't know it existed. And, and, and the incredible thing, I mean, it's, it's just a wonderful work of art, I agree, is it was used then as the standard. If for people to, you know, understand where stars were or moons were, they would refer back to dear old Antonin's book. Yeah. It's just incredible. But but I, I need to, um, I hate the word pivot, but I'm going to need to pivot slightly because that guy dedicated his life to doing something that was meaningful and future generations could use. Mm -hmm. And sparing your blushes, that's how I view you with your work with AIEF. So you had a life change and you have dedicated the last, uh, if I'm correct, 12 or so years to building... Uh, an amazing organisation and support network in AIEF. And I, I'd love mm. you to talk a little bit to that. Yeah, well, it's, it's close to 20 years really since I started doing that work um, in 2004, five years just as a volunteer setting up some um, Indigenous scholarship program at one school and then AIEF created in 2008, so 12 years ago. Um, and, yeah, look, I mean, basically, as you know, what we do is we provide scholarships for Indigenous kids to be able to go to fantastic schools um, of their choice. Um, and then we help them get careers after they finish. And we've had fantastic success um, with the results that that's achieved um, in terms of those kids finishing school and moving into university and employment and becoming leaders and role models and just really inspiring people. And, you know, we've now got a thousand kids that we've supported over a thousand. And every day I feel completely 
blessed to be so inspired by their stories. You know, every day there's another story and it's just incredible. And I, I guess in a way it sort of came out of tragedy, a little bit like the sort of the stew thing where, um, you know, my dad had died when I was very young and I was raised by a single mum um, and we're living in Glebe, which was kind of, um, you know, now very trendy little cafe town. Back then it was the complete opposite. You know, mum was working long hours trying to make a living and support my sister and I and um, and doing her very best to do so. But, you know, she was working in bars and restaurants and, and in catering and hospitality and so on. So it was very long hours, nights, weekends and so on. And so I kind of just grew up with a lot of freedom and um, and sort of started disconnecting from school and getting in a lot of trouble and um, being a bad influence. And, uh, you know, a lot of schools kind of encouraged me to move on a couple of times. <laughs> um, and I eventually found myself sort of sent off to boarding school, which I have to say, you know, compared to boarding schools of today with their a la carte, you know, vegan menus and low <laughs> carbs and all of this sort of stuff back then, they were more like a sort of a boy's home, you know, yep. not not literally. It was a great experience, but they were brutal places. And and so here was I, sort of 14-year-old, where I'd had, you know, these years from 11, 12, 13, complete freedom, running around the streets of Glebe, playing with my mates and having a great time, um, then hanging out in pinball halls and wagging school and all of this stuff. And my marks were terrible at school. And, and my mum and grandmother intervened and somehow convinced this boarding school to take me in. And I hated it. You know, I mean, absolutely hated it. It was like being sent to prison. So, you know, in the first six or 12 months there, I was literally in detentions every weekend. I was in fights every second day. I ran away countless times. I'd spend a week in a youth off, um, youth refuge out at Bankstown where no one knew where I was. Um, and, you know, I was on the cusp of expulsion the whole time. And of course, in class, my grades were terrible. I think the highest result I got in any subject that year nine was about 32% or so on. <laughs> and then anyway, from then, it kind of these environments just morph on you. I'd never decided, okay, I'm going to try hard and knuckle down now, you know, but just over the next few years, it just was a big transition for me. And I guess, um, you know, that experience of the opportunity I had, you know, I spoke about the, the time I had in London and working as a lawyer. I mean, you know, I went from the, the shit kid in the bottom of the class in year nine to becoming a lawyer and working in spectacular commercial international law firms and banks and so on, um, doing amazing things. And I kind of, it was that educational experience and the environment and everything that I was in that really kind of changed my life. And so I'm certainly not saying for a minute that boarding school is for everybody or anything like that, but the combination of the great quality education, the camaraderie and sense of belonging that you build in a boarding school environment, the relationships you build, um, the after-school programs, the support in the homework centres, the whole package just becomes a really kind of compelling kind of um, thing for some people. Um, even people like me who didn't want it, but yeah. yet it still managed to sort of shape and morph me. And so, you know, and I guess the other part of that growing up in Glebe was, you know, I had a pretty lefty kind of socially active family um, and we're involved in marches and demonstrations and town hall meetings and, you know, I was getting dragged along to these things all my life as a kid and had lots of relatives who were politicians in the Labor Party and stuff and um, uh, and so I was kind of growing up in this environment where we were very aware of social issues and what was going on and very involved. Um, and so this issue and, I, you know, of, of Aboriginal, their opportunities versus the opportunity someone like me had living next door or around the same street just because of virtue of skin colour and that sort of thing. So it was an, always an issue that I was really close to. And um, 
Uh, and I think it really then came to a head where um, I was living in Hong Kong, working in a bank at the time, and in 2002 when we had the Bali bombings. And uh, I lost 12 of my mates in, in the Bali bombings who were down there on a rugby tour. My rugby team was down there. I was playing um, for the Hong Kong Football Club. And um, after that, a few of us, a lot of us actually got together and set up a fund and raised a lot of money to help um, the wives of our friends who had died, their children, their families. Um, and we also sent a lot of money to Indonesia to support Indonesian kids who lost a, a parent as well. And shortly after that, um, uh, I was down in Sydney and someone told me that Joey's, the boarding school I went to, had started enrolling Aboriginal kids. And I was just fascinated by that. And I went to see them and they basically explained, you know, I, I guess at the end of it, my question was, you've got a thousand kids in this school, but you've only got six Aboriginal kids. Like, it's awesome what you're doing, but, you know, you could probably do a lot more. Yeah. And basically their answer was, yeah, but money, you know, like it's um, it's obviously an expensive thing to do. So I went back to Hong Kong um, and started putting some ideas together, went back and presented to them to say, look, if you could raise five to $7 million, you could build an endowment fund and then you could have 30 or 40 Aboriginal boys here forever, every year. Um, and I said, that's great, but how? And I said, oh, well, I can help and so on and so because i just done this barley thing and, and I guess I realised that from the barley thing, the experiences and skills I developed in law and business and finance and banking and so on could be used for, for another thing. And um, so I kind of just volunteered and sort of, you know, announced to Michelle, hey, how about we move back to Australia and quit our jobs and um, and just go and do this? So we spent the next five years from the dining room running that, um, raising the money. And at the end of that, which was when AIF started, uh, you know, there was a lot of the people who supported us saying this is fantastic, but it's always been about more than one school. You know, this is about showing what can be done, creating a template, a lighthouse project, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then it, so a lot of our donors and supporters are really keen on seeing it go beyond that one school. And at the same time, we had dozens of schools from around Australia contacting us saying, how did you do that? And how did you raise the money? And can you help us? And yeah. we don't have anyone or you know, girls' schools who would say, oh, no one gives money to girls' schools. It's always the dads who give it to boys' schools and all this sort of thing. And so I kind of just gradually started helping and then this idea took shape, why don't we why don't we take it to the next level? Because I already had the, the sort of the, the core of the, of the stakeholders and donors and stuff in place because even though it was for one school, we never went to the old boy community. We went outside the school to, to do that. So it was a real community kind of thing. And, um, you know, none of them I knew from being a banker or lawyer. These are all people I just knocked on doors and got to know. And so I grew from there. Right. So, yeah, now we kind of support about 400 kids a year um, at schools all around Australia, and we have about 600 or more than 600 alumni now who are all off exploring wonderful careers and living enriching and rewarding and great inspirational lives. Yeah, it, for me, I mean, well, you know my views on this. I, I just think it's the most inspirational organisation, uh, and, and it's nation-changing. Before I fall off this perch, there will be thousands of men and women who have gone through an AIF scholarship, and that's mm. going to change Australia for, yeah. for the better. And look, we already bump into them everywhere we go. You know, they work in government organisations, they work in companies and corporates, they work in schools as teachers, they work as plumbers and diesel mechanics and, you know, service organisations, health organisations, 400 communities from around Australia, they're everywhere already. And they're such a potent force. This, you know, it's not just them individually. They go back to their communities and they've got siblings and cousins and friends and, you know, the mob that they kind of have in these, in, in, in Aboriginal culture. They're so connected to people. And 
Others see them as amazing role models and doesn't mean they all want to go off to boarding school in the city or anything like that and and nor should they. You know, that's not the idea. It's not about promoting boarding schools as some sort of magic solution. But they see the value of education and they see what you can do with your life and they see a brighter future for themselves. They, you know, they want to be like their cousin or their brother. And so they all kind of get motivated. And I've seen that happen in so many families already, whether they're part of our program or not. You know, you change the nation one one person at a time. Hopefully you can scale it and 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 do it on a larger scale. But um as I think you said to me sometime, it's not the solution, but it's part of the solution. And it's one thing that absolutely works and we've got the evidence to prove it. We're going to go to your song and you're keeping the unusual theme going, Penfold, because... You've chosen the first song of Midnight Oil's debut uh, eponymous album, Midnight Oil, uh, released in 1978. But you were very, very specific that we, you didn't want that song. You wanted the 1982 Live at the Capitol Theatre version because I suspect you were at that concert. And I've watched the video about a hundred times trying to see you, but I can't. But tell me why you've chosen it about the concert and what it means to you. Yeah, well, I mean, Midnight have been such a massive part of my life. Um, I sort of grew up when before I, um, uh, well, ever since I was sort of a youngster, basically around the inner city, my uncle used to take me along to concerts when I was 12 years old and we'd go and see all these bands around the city and he was passionate about Midnight and so on. And um, and I sort of started listening to them and I connected with the lyrics, you know, that was political, it was angry, it was anti-establishment, it was authentic, it was raw, and just so much about them sort of resonated with me as a young, angry, rebellious teenager and and I just really connected with it from a very early age. And, and then I had this whole group of mates that I used to go surfing with and stuff who all were into the oils and they're all older than me and all had licenses and, and stuff and they'd sort of drive me down and help smuggle me into pubs to watch them and all of this sort of thing. So I'd just grown up watching them and um and being, you know, being into the oils and have been all my life. And, you know, many, many, many of my best friends have kind of come on the journey with me. And so yeah, it was just kind of that um that whole sort of thing that influenced my life. And it it influenced again, you know, part of my interest in the indigenous issues came from you not all part of the things that shaped my political views and leanings came from Unite Oil and it just had so many different influences in my life and and also when you are young and, you know, feeling you're like trying to find your place in the world and so on, that particular concert was amazing because, I mean, first, first of all, the song itself, you watch that video and you've got to turn it up. It's got to be loud. Was it the encore? Uh, it was, I yeah. think. Yeah, it was. Um because I remember the sort of the lights came smashing up and they blurted out from backstage with Garrett stumbling across the stage in a frenzy, um, nearly feeling, nearly falling over and so on. But um, it's just the energy of that version, of that version of the song. Like even if I watch it today or listen to it on in my car or whatever on my playlist, it just goes up onto eleven and it makes my hair stand on end. It's just spine tingling. It is quite and, different to, to, to the album version. The, yeah, the, well, the album version, when you listen to it afterwards, it just yeah. sounds so yeah. flat, you know. But was actually it? it was a great song even on the album version, but just the energy that that one captures. I think the other part of it was that, you know, the concert itself. So here I am at boarding school. It's a Saturday night. 
very special family mass and then family dinner. So all the parents come to school. It must have been the end of the sports season or something, but you have these family And you masses. must have been 16 now? No, I was like 14, 14. 15. okay, yeah, right. 14, 15. Um, 15 would have been, yeah. And uh, so anyway, in those days, you weren't allowed to go out on a Sunday night unless you had, you know, if you're in year 12, but when you're in year 11 or 10, whatever I was then, you weren't allowed out. And not only that, but it was a special family Mass and dinner at the school, and so my dear mum knew how much I loved the night oil, <laughs> and wrote a letter that we'd had a death in the family or no. some tragic <laughs> kind of thing that was an emergency that I had to get out of school for. So the compromise the school agreed was that I'd go for the mass, but then I'd be allowed to leave to go to the family thing, whatever it was afterwards. Meanwhile, mum's waiting in her car out in the side street go, of Hunters Hill drives me straight to the Capitol Theatre in the city <laughs> where all my surfer mates were down in the front row. Um, and just as the band came on, I kind of came in. Um, and so I was sort of straight down the front in that mosh pit, this frenzy of sweat and youthful exuberance and energy. And and then also my mum and and my uncle, who was the one who used to drag me around to all the concerts in the city, loved me not at all, they both came in as well. <laughs> and so they're up the back. The Capitol Theatre has this little bar under the, um, under the balcony at the very back. Yeah. And they were standing up there having a drink and watching it from a distance. And suddenly my uncle said to my mum, Alex, that's Andrew up on stage. <laughs> so at the end of the show, all these kids get up and start dancing on the stage while they're doing their last song. That bit never made it onto yeah. end of the film. But it's just such an amazing night. My favourite band, an amazing version, the energy and rawness of it, all my mates and and just the story, the midnight all story in my life. It's part of me. Yeah. And something I want to ask you about, which is, you are one of the most sort of relentlessly energetic people that I know. And uh, I just want to ask, A, where you get that from, and B, do you just collapse when you get behind doors so no one but Michelle can see you? Or I, I mean, you must be a nightmare to live with. Or do you get home and then do things all the time, or, or do you collapse on the sofa? Well, I often say that I probably wouldn't have a social life if I wasn't married to Michelle, because when I do come down every day or whatever it is, um, I love being on my own. I love my own company, you know. I mean, I just spent two weeks in hotel quarantine. It was one of my favourite two weeks of my life. <laughs> I loved it. All these people complaining about the food and the lock-in and the no, whatever. I had no balcony, but it was a beautiful two weeks of my life. Um, so I do like I do like my own time to sort of decompress and just, you know, ponder and, and relax and whatever. Um I think the, you know, I, I am energetic and um, I just always am on the go. It's just kind of inbuilt in me. But, you know, I guess I think where it comes from is that um, I've always probably felt like I need to prove myself. And, what, and why is that? Well, because, um, you know, I, I, as a youngster, dad had died and I was, you know, as I said, living with my mum in Glebe and my sister and um, here I turn up at this flash private school and I've got long hair and an earring and I'm in fights every day and I'm just the dickhead outsider, right? And everyone else in that school was lovely middle class, white mainly, as, as am I, <laughs> um, but, you know, it was a very kind of different environment and then my wife's family were very, you know, they were refugees, European, very old-fashioned. Um, and, you know, is this kid from Glebe who always turns up in dirty, ripped clothes good enough for our daughter? Sure. And 
that and that became an inspiration to me. I think then once I was at school sort of trying to prove, like my grandfather who, who died when I was about 20, always, Andrew, you're a genius. <laughs> I don't know where he got that from, but, you know, he, it seemed at times like he was the only one who ever believed in me. And um, so I was always really keen to prove to prove him like his judgment was deserved and to prove to my wife's family that, you know, that, um, you know, she was in good hands. And, um, and I think again, you know, like coming out of, coming out of high school, I got, I went into UTS to do a law degree, right. And I didn't have the marks for it. They just took me based on an interview. Mm. So I didn't really deserve, oh, deserves the wrong word, but I hadn't earned my own space through the traditional HSC mark. So they believed in me and gave me a break. I needed to demonstrate that that was a that was a good thing to do. And then, you know, I mean, I got my first job with a guy called Rob Coombe, who I'm still very close with, and uh, and he supports our work and um, so on. And he hired me in my first job in the legal thing. And there was all these other candidates who were so much more qualified and smarter, but he just believed in me and saw something. And then. And then I get to Mallison's, which is like the preeminent commercial law firm in Australia back then. It was the establishment firm, you know. And I got in as a paralegal and then they later hired me as a lawyer, paralegal, whilst I was still at uni, I was doing my studies part-time. You know, I just instantly didn't feel like I really right. belonged here and I was a bit of an imposter. And I guess that's the thing. It's like I've kind of I've had to fight my way into everything my whole life. And so... You know, even though I've been privileged, there's, you know, it's a horrible word, I know, in, in some contexts, but I have been privileged. I've been fortunate and I've had doors open for me by people when there was always someone better or more qualified or more blue blood or or whatever it was and more connected. Uh, and so it's just that sense of fighting for everything, I suppose. It's kind of given me a bit of a burning thing and the midnight oil thing, you know, ignited a fire in me and that's kind of the the flame that they have as well. So I guess it's just um, that's how I work and that's how I live and, you know, and then getting the fresh fields, right, you know, not only like when you're an Aussie living in Hong Kong, you suddenly feel like an Aussie. You never think about it before then, right? You're growing up in Australia. Everyone else is Australian. But when you get to London <laughs> with all the, you know, blue bloods in an yeah. establishment um, Fleet Street wall firm in the city, it's all the jokes about kangaroos and convicts and koala bears yeah. and all of this sort of stuff. And and suddenly it's, you know, it's like, God, now all these young, stuffy, toffy wankers all think they're better than me because <laughs> of their nationality. And so, again, I feel like, yeah. God, I'm an outsider again. And so it's just that sort of thing. I don't so, know. So this, just, this yeah. is fascinating. So there's a massive upside to Australia that you've got a chip on your shoulder. It's fantastic. If you didn't have one, you Isn't wouldn't. Is it a chip? Yeah. <laughs> or or the, yeah. the driving thing. But then yeah. I, I see you knocking around with Gonski and Rudd and Abbott and, mm. you know, the, the cream of, of commercial and government and, you know, the, mm. the A-list of, of Australia. And I wonder if, if you'll ever scratch that itch or it's just sort of because of it's so long in your life feeling that way that now you've, I mean, you've made it in every respect, uh, if, you know, your energy levels will dip. But, or, you, or you'll just, you'll still feel you, I mean, who, you, what have you got left to prove? Oh, it's not proving now. This is just how I am. Yeah. I think it's, I'm not trying to prove anything to anyone now, but, um, you know, look, I, I do find it really tiring, the unrelenting battle, you know, for funding from governments and things like that for what we do when it's so successful and proven and whatever. Yes. But, 
you know, and they profess to want to close the gap, but there's just always reasons not <laughs> Here's to. Here's something that works. You know, yeah. Just, yeah. And, and uh, at, at times you feel like it would be so easy to give up. Yes. But, like, I, I, I don't want to sound, you know, pious or something, but I feel like I would be letting the bastards beat me mm. when I'm here to fight for vulnerable Aboriginal kids who don't have a voice or their families who don't have a voice, and I'm just not going to do that. So, you know, the harder I have to fight, the, that's fine. That's that's what I've decided that I'm going to do and I'll keep doing. And, um, you know, they come and go and uh, then you sort of have a new battle with the next people or whatever. Um, and I don't mean the politicians. It's more the system, you know. Mm. It's not the politicians. I've, I've had um, really great relationships with pretty much every minister and prime minister since 2006 or seven or so. Um, particularly from Rudd um, and even slightly before him with John Howard and Joe Hockey, people like that. But, uh, yeah, I think it's just the system. The system kind of wears you down and grinds you down. So I won't ever stop that fight. But, look, even on I – just, I just spent the last weekend on a farm, my family's farm that uh, my wife has inherited and, you know – She's got her sisters there and I'm just out chopping wood and cutting down trees and mowing the lawns and <laughs> fixing the plumbing and <laughs> repairing motorbikes and tractors and just like I just I just like to do stuff, you know, and um and sitting around is kind of to me I mean it's fun if I'm sitting around with my great friends and having a few beers by the fire or something like that. That's awesome. But I just like action and um and I like doing and doing makes me happy and, you know, I don't I don't see sort of I don't see being happy as a goal in life, but it's a lovely consequence of leading a, an interesting life, I suppose. Byron Bay. Hmm. Is this where your wife's inherited the farm? or you've no. cho- Okay, you've chosen it as your place. Yep. I- explain to us why. Yeah, I mean, it could have easily been the farm, but no, um, the other farms at Gloucester. Byron Bay, so as a kid, you know, you've, you've heard about sort of my life growing up as a youngster and um, I guess we didn't really have very many family holidays. You know, family, sorry, school holidays are about riding your bike around the streets with your mates and climbing trees or whatever kids, you know, hanging in pinball halls and ice skating rinks and things like that. Um, but, you know, I went, I think probably Byron Bay is my first holiday that I can remember as a kid and I was probably 15 with all my surfer mates who were at the Midnight Oil concert down the front at the Capitol Theatre in 1982. And one of them, his grandparents owned the then disused bakery at Newry Bar, which is now the Trendy Harvest Cafe. 25 of us went up in a fleet of cars for like six weeks over Christmas one year and spent the summer sleeping on the floor of this concrete floor of a bakery in Newry Bar. And every day we just go surfing and go to the pubs and hang out and have fun and party and so on. And and so it just became, that was sort of one of my first experiences and I fell in love with Byron Bay from that first visit. And then when I left school, um, me and my three best friends, um, so four of us, set out in a little Volkswagen Beetle and an old Valiant and we headed from Sydney to Noosa and we stopped at every single beach along the way, stuck up the tent, went surfing and got to Byron Bay and like, oh, my God, this place is just amazing because they <laughs> I don't think they'd been there or hadn't been there much. And then we continued on our way up to Noosa, got to Noosa at New Year's Eve and actually saw Midnight All in, at Noosa up there play an amazing concert there. Um, and then when we turned around to go back to Sydney and we got to Byron Bay, the other three decided we're staying. <laughs> and they're still there. <laughs> yeah. That's great. And they're still my three best friends. <laughs> three, all three of my best friends. And and well, I was well, like, one of them's a national ranger, isn't he? Yeah. So Sean is the is the sort of park ranger for Cape Fire National Parks, and Dave is the car park attendant for the 
Byron Bay Lighthouse. Um, and Darren works for the council in engineering. So it's a lifelong that. road trip. Totally. <laughs> They're still on it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, no, I'm going to go back to uni, you know. So um, I went back to uni and then, um, you know, ended up in London and Hong Kong right. and a totally, totally different life. But um, so even Michelle and I used to go up there um, when we first started dating in our teens and then when we had children, we started taking them there every Christmas and summer holidays and so on. Um, we'd bring our family there and eventually we bought a house there. It's now where we spend every Christmas and all the family comes and, um, you know, we don't get up there as much as we'd love to, but it's just a place that's got such a special place in my heart. And, you know, people go, oh, it's changed and all that. It has, but it hasn't, you know, it's still, it's still got the same vibe. It's just, if you take away all the black four wheel drives and, and yuppies, it's yeah. kind of still Byron Bay, you know, it's still got the soul that's similar. And, uh, yeah, and I just think all those memories, you know, that those three guys are just the most salt-of-the-earth, genuine, down-to-earth friends I've kind of made in my life. And they just live really amazing, authentic lives. And it doesn't matter if I see them once a month or once every five years, you know, still your best friends. And so it just kind of, for me, it's an intersection of my young surfer mates from the Midnight All Days, my schoolmates I went on the road trip with, my wife, my children, my family, Christmases, holidays, and just the memories, you know. So it is the place because there's a lot of place where you can develop memories, but there's something special about about that place that just really kind of has a special place in my it's, heart. It's and, um, so lovely yeah. seeing you, uh, you sort of light up and hearing. And that story about your mates, that is just a classic. So you get yeah. free parking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, free, free tours of the lighthouse as well, yeah. Go and have a chat to Sean up there next time you're there, folks. And uh, No, but I mean, you can actually, you know, see some really amazing stuff up there. And it's just a beautiful part of the world and... Um, you know, probably where I'll hang my hat one day or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's just really, as I say, that intersection of friends, life and everything in my life that's kind of important has all got a Wonderful. kind of um, something that hovers around Byron Bay. Red Lycee Packet. Mm. Now, before you talk about why you've chosen this possession on Five of My Life, I'd like you to describe it for us, but also a little bit about the Chinese traditions about it. It can't have the number four in it. You've got to give it with two hands, all those things, because I hadn't I hadn't heard of a red lycee packet before, and obviously I do my research on the things that my guests yeah. choose, but just for us, could you explain what one is before you tell us about yours? Yeah, well, firstly, the number four and the two-hand thing. So um, that's actually not really anything to do with lycee packets. They're just other customs in China. China. So right. okay. four basically in Chinese, that you some say, say is number four. Um, it means, sounds like death. Right. And so if you go into any office block or apartment building, it goes level one, two, three, five. Is that right? Yeah, and then 11, okay. 12, 13, 15, and then 21, 22, 3, 25, and so on. It's their, no 13, it's their 13, and they take it's it really seriously. much worse than 13. Right. 13 <laughs> is a little bit of a joke. Yeah. It doesn't right. really mean it. These people take it. Deadly serious. How can I have know? lived to 56 and not know yeah. that? That's amazing. Right. So four is a very unlucky number and it's just not a number that people use um, um, and name things after or buildings or offices or street building or whatever it is. Um, you know, even a lot of people won't have a four on their number plate and they'll replace it and so on. So that's, yeah, you wouldn't put $4 in a lice packet, but you wouldn't. Put it anywhere four else. Is <laughs> yeah. Eight is awesome. Eight is really good luck, get fat, be rich, whatever. Right. You know, be prosperous, healthy, happy. It's a great number, eight. Um, and the two-handed thing. So, it's yes, it's lycee packets. You always hand it to someone with two hands, but you also do that with 
name cards. Right. Right. So and and money in a bank when you or in a shop when you get your change, they'll always hand it to you in two hands, two hands, and you take it with two hands. So that's just part of a Chinese culture. So the Lycee packet is a little red envelope, golden Chinese characters written in it that say nice things in Chinese like be prosperous or rich or healthy or happy, whatever, you know, just good luck messages for Chinese New Year. And at Chinese New Year, the custom is that you give them to everyone. So generally sort of the senior people given to the junior and, you know, Hong Kong is a little bit of a China, Chinese culture has got lots of um, hierarchical kind of aspects to it. And so, you know, the secretary doesn't give it to the to the CEO, but the CEO gives it to the secretary and Understood, the tenant right. gives it to the doorman and so on. But at Chinese Year, everyone gives them to everybody. And so I've arrived in in, uh, in Hong Kong in 1990, uh, January 1995, just after getting married. And the first Chinese, Chinese Year is normally, you know, February or something like that early in the year. Um, it changes. But um, my one of my colleagues at work, a secretary um, in this law firm I was working with, Freshfields in Hong Kong again, handed me this and I didn't know anything about it. And um, so... It's just a, it's a to, to me I guess you know so it is a it's something that everyone gives everyone at Chinese New Year as a as a gesture of good luck like a Christmas present or whatever, um, and the money inside is not the currency is not important the amount is not important um, I mean you know if you're giving one to your secretary it probably matters a little bit more but um, and also it's got to have fresh notes you can't have crumpled old dirty up screwed up notes and whatever okay um, so you always get clean bank notes from the bank for Chinese New Year so look I think. This it was given to me by, you know, my first secretary in Hong Kong. I loved the gesture of it and my first exposure and welcoming to Hong Kong culture and, and that sort of thing. Um, I've just grown over my life to love China, Chinese culture, Hong Kong in particular, and um, so many aspects of it. And I've just kind of kept it with me and it's travelled with me at every desk, every office, everywhere I've ever worked. It sits in my top drawer. And you've never opened it? Uh, well, I've opened it to see what was inside it when right. I first got it, yeah. um, and now it's just got a little $2 coin in it, and it's just kind of, it's just my moment, memento of, you know, the, the time I had in Hong Kong, um, and it's always kind of accompanied with a little photo, which is me with a lot of my mates that I played rugby with at a, at a lunch with John Eels and Mark Eller and, um, sorry, Glenn Eller, um, and uh, just before the Rugby Sevens one year and, you know, a lot of those guys then died in Bali um, shortly after. So it's kind of the two things sort of sit side by side in my drawer wherever I work and I, you know, it's it's my um, way of remembering and thinking about one of my favourite places in the world and one of the favourite parts of my life um, and the Chinese culture and what that means to me and, and, and I, you know, look, I'm not superstitious. I, you know, very cynical about things like this, but there's just something about the way, the seriousness that when Chinese people talk about their superstitions and their cultural things and whatever, it's not like, you know, the zodiac signs or something right. like that, which kind of make my eyes roll. But um, these are about things that have just carried for centuries in their culture and the longevity of these these little gestures and so on. And so, you know, and then, you know, again, Hong Kong was a place that had an amazing, amazing part of my life, amazing friends, um, but also tragedy, you know, I lost all my mates in the Bali bombings again. And so it's my little thing that mm. I just kind of remember that as well. And it makes me think about them and, and, and their lives and their wives and their children they left behind and, um, and those sorts of things. So it's just, a it's a inconsequential in terms of 
monetary value or preciousness or anything, but it's just something that means a lot to me. And if I, when I was thinking about the, the, the possession, I like, well, what's one thing me, one thing that I've kind of had forever and I've lived all over the world and spent a lot of my life in different countries, but it's the one thing that's kind of been with me for the last 30 years. And, um, uh, no matter where I go or what I do, it's kind of there. So for me, it's a, it's a beautiful choice and it's, uh, a very good example of what five of my life tries to be about. It makes you think about you know mm. what you might choose, and and I wouldn't have heard that story if you hadn't chosen it. I think it's a it's a it's a privilege to listen to you, mate. It's yeah. just just lovely to hear your stories. Now we're going to come on to the to the, my sixth question. That, that's uh, one of my favourite parts of of this podcast because guests tell me their choices in advance. They don't tell me why, but they tell me their choices. So I go off and do as much research as I can mm. on them. Um, but they don't tell me the answer to their to the sixth question. They tell me that live. So I'm going to ask you, who would you like to hear on uh, Five of My Life next and why? Well, I think it's really obvious. I'd love to hear Nigel Marsh. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I know the perfect person who could interview you. No, I mean, that, I think it would be fascinating. But, um, look, I think when I was thinking about really interesting people that um, – that I've come across in my life. I mean, I would love to hear Nigel Marsh, by the way. But um, when I think about really interesting people, um, Nicholas Rothwell, who introduced me oh. through his book um, to this Atlas of the Heavens, um, he is one of the most softly, gentle-spoken and articulate communicators that I've ever met in my life. And every word and sentence he utters is thoughtful and interesting and just fascinating. He's a fascinating man. And he um, used to write frequently in The Australian covering Aboriginal affairs, and he's married to an Aboriginal lady. Um, he lives up in the mountains in Queensland, up behind Cairns somewhere in the rainforests, um, in a very humble and quiet life up there. But um, he's just, he's a, he's a, and when he wrote in The Australian on Aboriginal affairs, he probably one of the most, if not the most, kind of insightful, knowledgeable writers on Indigenous affairs and Aboriginal affairs in Australia um, with a poetic turn of phrase and um, just a fascinating, fascinating guy. Um, and, yeah, I think it'd be really interesting for people to hear his voice and hear his stories if he were willing to do it. What a wonderful, wonderful recommendation. I, I have adored listening to you talk about your five choices, Andrew. It's just been fabulous for me. I, I am going to take away... From, I mean, many things from this, but the the notion that life hangs on a thread and the story about your mates and the accident with Stu, uh, it's just been a very uh, meaningful and beautiful conversation. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Nigel. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. 